So you'll see there kids and parents that uh, our uh, transformation station workers have signs trying to be a little more specific. So uh, the subway station uh, four to K is going to go with Meredith there and they're going to walk down the stairs and our subway twos and threes will go down the elevator and uh, then our babies of course will, will be in the nursery and the bus station. And then finally if you're a commuter kid that's first to fifth grade uh, you'll be up here in the conference room. So parents we're making that little adjustment for organizational and growth uh, measures. So, um, so thanks for uh, noticing that and, and being aware of that. Well uh, I have the great privilege today to uh, introduce a friend to you. Dr. Andy Davis is uh, the pastor of First Baptist Church, Durham, North Carolina. He also serves as a professor where uh, the, our leadership team, the majority of our leadership team, studied at Southeastern Seminary. So uh, Dr. Davis uh, is here in Greater Boston for a sabbatical stint uh, to, to rest and have family time and also to do some writing uh, and ministry. They are, their church is also a part of the North American Church Planting Foundation, which uh, we are connected to. And and I've been blessed by. So there's another connecting point there. And, and just to be frank, when I heard Dr. Davis was going to be in Boston, I said, man, it would be awesome if he would come to preach for us one Sunday. Uh, he was really my favorite professor. I don't know if he knows this, but he taught one class on Martin Luther, and it was the best class that I took in seminary. And he's also one of my favorite preachers. Whenever I need to, to study a text or listen to a sermon, I'll check to see if he's preached on it uh, as quickly as I'll check anyone else. So uh, I want to invite uh, Andy Davis to come and share God's word with us this morning. So give him a, a warm welcome. Good. Well, let's pray together. Fathers, we stand before you now. We, we're well aware, we should be aware of our complete neediness and dependence on you and on Jesus Lord Jesus, you are the vine, we are merely the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we commit this time fully to you. I ask that you'd fill me now with your Holy Spirit. And fill each of us as we listen to you speak through the word, O oh Lord. Convict us of sin, strengthen us, O oh Lord, in you. Help us to give a sense of, of your greatness, Lord Jesus. The greatness of what you achieved on the cross and at the empty tomb. And that we who are already believers might be renewed and strengthened in our faith and, and empowered to serve you to fight sin every day by the power of the Spirit, to witness in a dark world the power of the gospel. And Lord, if there are any here that don't yet know you, I pray that they'd be drawn in by the Scriptures, drawn in by the words of Jesus, convicted, warned, and that they would repent and turn and flee to Christ and find today salvation in Jesus. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I'm going to focus uh, my attention on just a few verses in Matthew 16, but I'd like to ask that you take your Bibles, if you have them, and, and turn to Matthew 16. I'm going to read uh, from verse four, 24 up through uh, verse uh, 27. But we're going to focus just on a few verses in that text. And if you don't have a Bible, I've noticed that Redemption Hill has some available. So um, right in front of you on the floor, you'll find a Bible there. And uh, I checked it's on page 822, the text that I'm looking at today. Matthew 16, 24 and following. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now, I want to begin this morning by asking a question. It's the name of a short story written by Leo Tolstoy. Wrote it in 1886. This Russian novelist asked this question, how much land does a man need? James Joyce, uh, the Irish author, called it the greatest short story ever written. And it's a fascinating story, really. It's one of the, my favorite short stories that I've ever, ever read. And it's about a Russian man uh, living in the 19th century, who had ambitions to increase his, improve his lot in life. And back then, the most valuable commodity any individual could have would be land. If you owned a great deal of land, you were wealthy, if, uh, more wealthy than somebody who uh, owned less land. And someone who owned no land was a peasant, really uh, living at the whim of others, of landowners. So Payam, this character in the story, yearns for more land, and more prosperity. And at the beginning of the story, he boasts uh, to his wife, if I had plenty of land, I wouldn't fear the devil himself. Well, in the story, the devil himself is listening behind the stove. He overhears the comment. And uh, he snickers. He says to himself, all right, fine, we'll have a battle. I'll give this man plenty of land. And by that means, I will get you into my power. Well, as the story unfolds, this man, Payam, hears that beyond the mountains, in the eastern part of the country, there, are a pe there is a people there that's selling large tracts of land for very little money, in the fertile valleys of the Bashkir people. Payam can hardly believe what he's heard, and he decides it's worth finding out. And so he travels a long distance over land, and he meets up with the Bashkir chieftain, finds out that it's all true. Yes, they're selling large amounts of arable land. They're sitting, drinking some tea. They're having some social rituals. And when all that's done, Payam gets down to business. He declares his intention to buy a large tract of land. He wants to know how much it's going to be. Uh, Payam, uh, Payam listens, and the chieftain says the price is 1,000 rubles per day. Payam doesn't understand this price. What does that mean, 1,000 Rubles per day. Well, yeah, they say it's a thousand rubles for the amount of land you can travel around in a single day. Payam can't believe his ears. He says, I'm a young man, I'm healthy, energetic. This is the best thing I've ever heard. And so he quickly agrees to the price. He said, now, the chieftain says, now listen, you've got to start at one place and you've got to end at that same place before sundown. You've got to start at sunrise and before the sun sets, you've got to get back to that same place or your thousand rubles is forfeit to us. Payam doesn't think that's any problem at all. And so he asks if he can start tomorrow, if he can do it tomorrow. I say, fine. So that whole night, Payam's greedy heart is just leaping for joy. He says, I think I can walk around 35 miles in one day. No problem. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be the richest person I've ever heard of. I'll have 150 acres of plow land, and the rest will be just grazing land for all my head of cattle. I'm going to be a wealthy man. So he goes to sleep, and the next day, he meets up with the chieftain, and they're on this little hill, 
And as they look, they overlook all this rich farmland valley, and he can hardly wait to get going. The sun hasn't quite risen yet. Uh, he understands the rules. The chieftain's going to throw down a hat, and that's the start of the race. But he's got to get back to that hat before the sun sets. Well, the sun pokes its uh, face up over the horizon. The race is on. The chieftain drops his hat, and Payam begins. He starts out. And he, as he goes, the land just seems to get better and better. He's crossing rivers. He's, it's rich land. It's, there are these copses of trees. Everything is just magnificent. And he just keeps going and going in one direction. He can't help himself. But he doesn't notice that the sun is climbing. It's rising. It's getting hotter. And, and he's carrying a spade with him. And according to the, the, the signal, he's got to uh, dig holes at the, at the corners of his land. And so he realizes it's late mid-morning by now. And he says, I've gone a long way. I better dig my first hole. And so he takes the spade and he digs that little hole, marking the first corner. But now the sun is already past noon, and he realizes he's probably a little bit behind schedule. So on the second leg, he doesn't go quite as ambitiously, not quite as far, but he's moving, and the sun is just flying across the sky at this point. And so quickly he digs the second hole, and now he's in trouble. He realizes he's got to get back. And so he's doing everything he can. He's running. He's sweating. The sun, it just seems to race him. He doesn't know where the time has gone. He digs the third hole, and now he turns for home. And as he goes, he can barely see that little hill. All the Bashkirs have gathered there. They're waiting for him. It's like a, like a marathon. And he's got almost no energy left, and he's driving, driving, driving. But he's still got that last hill to get up. And just uh, the sun is getting orange, it's getting red, it's just the time's almost out. He, he's got almost nothing left and he, he's going up the hill and he dives just as the sun dips down and grabs the chieftain's hat just in time. Well, the Bashkir people are just elated. They've never seen such a good show. Uh, it was exciting and they'd never seen anyone get so much land in a single day. And so they're cheering, throwing their hats in the air, and they go over to, to, to rouse him, but there's some blood flowing from his mouth. You see, Payam is dead. And so they take the spade that this guy carried the entire day, and they dig a hole six feet wide, about four feet, four feet wide, six feet long, six feet deep, and they bury him. And Tolstoy has his answer to the question. How much land does a man need? Just enough to bury him. Now, that's a fascinating story. I could actually preach on the story, but it's not Scripture, so I don't want to do that. But it's, it's a fertile story. It has you thinking uh, about questions, about motivations, about greed and ambition, about how quickly life passes, about how our, our, our life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, as Scripture says. And the question is a probing question. Tolstoy means for it to be a probing question. How much land does a man need? How much is enough? Well, in our text today, Jesus asks... I think far more probing questions, questions that get more to the issue of eternity. They really dig in and they, and they teach us a lot about our hearts and about eternity and, frankly, about Judgment Day. And one of the translations has it this way, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And then Jesus asked a second question related to it. What could a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, I want to zero in on those questions today. I want to try to understand that. Now, before I do that, I want to step back a little bit and try to understand the context. Where are we? Well, we're in Matthew's Gospel. The Gospels, four Gospels, were written to introduce people to Jesus Christ, to Jesus of Nazareth, so we can understand 
who he is. There are four brief biographies of Jesus. Matthew is the first one. It's the first book in the New Testament. And the, the Gospel of Matthew is written to present Jesus, I think, as an overarching theme, as the king of the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is huge in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus as the king, his right to be king, is presented right from the beginning. In Matthew 1, it starts with a genealogy, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's presented as Jewish, but even before that, he's presented as the son of David, the one who has the right to rule on David's throne. And then as Matthew 2 and 3 unfolds, we have the birth narratives, Matthew 1 and 2, the birth narratives of Jesus and we find that not only is Jesus the son of David and has the right to rule on David's throne, he's also the son of God. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary's womb. That's not up there. I don't know what's up there, but uh, uh, I'm just giving you a review right now of, of Matthew's gospel. And so Jesus is presented as a son of man, human, but also as the son of God. And then along comes this individual, John the Baptist, who gets, gets everything ready for Jesus and proclaims this important message. And the message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. And then at the end of Matthew 3, Jesus comes and is baptized by John. And the heavens open and the, and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove on him. And a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And so he's identified before all Israel as the Son of God, anointed with the Holy Spirit. Then he's led by the, by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil, and he's tempted there for 40 days. And then after that, he comes back and begins his public ministry, an astonishing display of supernatural power, a river of miracles, huge communities, large groups of people coming with illnesses and diseases, and he heals them all, everybody. There's nothing he cannot do. Supernatural, powerful teaching. And then, or, or, or miracles. And then we have the, the Sermon on the Mount, clearest display of Jesus' great teaching. He taught them, it says, as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The Sermon on the Mount gives a very clear description of what it's like to live in the kingdom of heaven. How can we enter the kingdom of heaven? What is kingdom life like? And then he goes on from there to continue to do miracles to teach and to preach and to challenge individual sinners to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so in Matthew 13, he teaches a series of parables which talk about life in the kingdom and about entering the kingdom and people responding to the word of God so they can enter the kingdom of God. Now, when they get to Matthew 16, by then, Jesus and his apostles, he's chosen out 12 men to be his apostles. They go on a retreat, spiritual retreat. They go to Caesarea Philippi. And it's a, it's a cool area. They're up in a mountain. They're having some time away from the crowd. And Jesus opens up a line of conversation with them. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say I am? And they answer prevailing notions about Jesus. Then he zeroes in on them and asks them what I consider to be the most important question any individual could ever ask or answer. Jesus looks, I think, at each one of us from the pages of Scripture and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? That question stands in front of all of us right now. It will stand in front of all of us until the day we die. And on the basis of our answer to that question, we will live with God forever in heaven or we will suffer with the devil forever in hell. That is the key issue. What do you think about Jesus? Who is He? 
Simon Peter answers on our behalf, on the behalf of all believers, saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the faith-filled answer that we must all be able to make. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Then Jesus shocked his disciples, gave them a, a real twist. They did not expect what was coming next. It says in the text, From that time on, Jesus began to warn his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This was a shock. This was completely unexpected to the apostles. They did not see this coming. And Peter, as usual, the spokesman for all of them, thinks, okay, this is wrong. And he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. I mean, just be astonished. Be amazed at the boldness. Peter rebuking Jesus. What would it sound like? Something like this. Well, Jesus, you do some amazing things. You've really got a good thing going here. I don't know how you do those miracles, but you're wrong on this one. Let me give you some advice. Let me try to help you on your mission. Let me try to help you through. You're not going to die. A dying Messiah doesn't make any sense. A dying king doesn't make any sense. But Jesus turns and rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You're not thinking like God wants you to think. You're thinking like a human thinks. You're caring too much about the things of this life. You're caring too much about the things of this world. You're thinking about your own position of power in my kingdom. You don't understand my kingdom. You don't understand the road ahead, what it's going to look like for you. And then he says, as I read, if anyone comes after me, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and you must take up your cross and you must follow me. You must live a self-sacrificial life. You must be willing to die. And this is shattering too because Jesus hadn't been crucified yet. They all knew what a cross was. They'd seen the Romans crucify lots of people. But it was a life of self-denial. And Jesus actually presses it in a little more in the Luke account. He says you have to deny yourself daily. You have to take up your cross daily to follow Jesus. That is the life that leads to heaven. And then he asks the questions that is in front of us. What would it profit a man? What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit or lose their soul? And then the second question, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? So what I want to do with the time that we have is I want to take those questions and I want to work on it this, on it this way. First, I want to talk about the world and what it is to gain it. And then, secondly, I want to talk about your soul, the soul, and what it is to lose it. And basically, I'm going to then sharpen it in. I'm going to take Jesus' questions and ask them of you. I want you to think about it. What would it profit you? What would you gain if you gained the whole world but forfeited your soul? I want to press it in on you and say, what about you? What would you give in exchange for your soul? I want to be sure that every person who's hearing me right now does not walk out of this room lost, unregenerate. I don't know you. I, I know many of you have been coming here. Many of you have been Christians for many years. I have no problem preaching this text to Christians because Jesus spoke it first to his apostles. So we need to hear this kind of thing all the time. But I'm also especially concerned for those of you that God may have brought this morning who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not, you're not saved yet. You know it. You know you're not Christians. Maybe you're invited here today and you're trying to find out what this is all about. 
I want to make it very, very clear, the issues that are coming from this text. I don't want you to be lost. I want you to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. And so I think from this text, we can talk about that. So let's first talk about this, the world and what it means to gain it. Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So what is the world? What are we talking about that? About there? I think for me in this text, the world is the sum total of all those things that are desirable, that could draw or attract the human heart, that could become the focus of ambition, something you could go after and yearn for and desire in your life. That's what the world is. It's, it's the material stuff and the things and, and all that of this created world. So I usually kind of sum them up in three Ps. Possessions, pleasures, and power. Those are the kind of three things I think of when I think of the world. Possessions, pleasures, and power. So that's the world. Now what does it mean to gain the whole world? Well, first of all, though many have tried, no one has ever been able to achieve it. Many, many people have tried to gain the whole world, but no one has ever been able to do it. Now, Jesus is clearly using hyperbole here to some degree, and that means an exaggerated statement to make a point. You'll never gain the whole world, but even if you did, what good would it be for you? That's what he's saying. So what efforts have there been made to gain the whole world? Well, let's talk about land. Let's start with land. All right, Payam was going after 35 miles of land in one day. What's the largest land em empire in the history of the world? In terms of contiguous land, land touching all together, all in one place, the Mongols hold the record. Genghis Khan won a, won a, a vast empire and handed off to his descendant eventually to Kublai Khan. In the 13th century, he was reigning over 12.8 million square miles, the largest contiguous land empire in history, larger than the Soviet Union, five times larger than Alexander the Great's empire. That's number one. That's the best. So if you have ambitions toward land, that's the, that's the record in human history, all right? And that, he didn't have that long. It didn't last long. Pretty soon, parts of his empire are falling away. Others have sought to gain aspects or attributes of the world, what we could call perhaps commodities. I think about, for example, John D. Rockefeller, who over 100 years ago was in charge of Standard Oil, and he had cornered the market in the oil industry in the United States. He controlled 90% of the entire oil industry from the ground to retail, right through retail. How wealthy does that make you? All right, 90% of, of all of the oil industry, including refineries, transportation, this outlets, everything. Well, according to Forbes, it makes him the richest man in history. They estimate in 21st century dollars, $318 billion net worth. What are you going to do with $318 billion? He was a Baptist deacon too. Imagine tithing on that. What would you do with $32 billion, Tanner? Uh, you'd choke, probably. I don't have any idea how to spend $32 billion wisely on the Lord's work. But thankfully, we don't have that problem. We don't have to worry about that. Uh, but 90%, and again, he didn't control it for very long, and that was just oil. Others have tried to control railroads or the finance. Uh, the Hunt brothers in the early 1970s tried to control silver, came up to like 50% of all the deliverable silver in the world, and then they ran out of money, and they went bankrupt. So they couldn't quite even do it with silver. So many have tried, but nobody has succeeded. And you know why? Because Satan's running this whole thing, and he's not going to give it to just one person, not yet. I think he's going to give it to the Antichrist. We'll get into that some other time. Not today. 
But he's pitting one against the other and keeping people hungry and, and jealous and filled with lust and all that. He's using it. He's the God of this age. Now, for us, as we consider this question, we have to honestly admit the world is attractive. We should not be so pure in our theology and say there's nothing in this world that appeals to me. Something's probably wrong with you if that's a true statement. Something's wrong. God made the world beautiful. There are many attractive and alluring things here. Now, I know the psalmist in Psalm 73, 25, after he was jealous of the prosperity of the wicked, he said this, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. I understand that language, but he still probably wanted to eat his next meal, probably enjoyed his wife and his kids and all that, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And so there are attractive things in this world, the beauty and the allure of this world, the value of uh, the, the pleasures of food and, and of entertainment and travel and hobbies, a good novel, a board game. Occasionally, spectator sports. It's the sports crazy town, I know. I grew up here in Boston. All of these things are good gifts from God if used properly. There's also the value of the esteem of other people. Uh, the desire for success in whatever thing you're trying to, to achieve, academics or business. All of these things have a certain allure and they are all good gifts of God. But if they are your ultimate goal, if that's what you're ultimately living for, any created thing that is ultimate or uppermost in your own affections is an idol. As it says in Romans chapter 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Now people have tried a lot of things. They've tried for the land. They've tried for power. Think about Alexander the Great, who I mentioned. He never lost a battle. Every time his army went on, on the field, he won the battle. Finally, his army, when he's pushing ever further east, winning more and more victories, getting a bigger and bigger kingdom. Finally, his Greek army said, enough is enough. They were in India. He said, we want to go home. We want to enjoy what we've done. And he sat down, Alexander the Great sat down and wept. There's no more battles to fight. So if you've been standing next to him as he's weeping, ask him, are you satisfied? Has this made you happy? What you did? It didn't make him happy. He was addicted. It didn't make him happy at all. What about wealth? Does wealth make us happy? More and more and more and more and more? Does not. Think about Croesus. He was a wealthy man in the 6th century BC. His mines pumped out gold. More, it was legendary for his gold. Problem was, it was very attractive, not only to him, but to Cyrus the Great of Persia. And he brought his army and came and took over the country. Burned Croesus to death. Now, as Croesus is just about to be ignited, ask him, was it worth it? Do you enjoy your gold now? What about wisdom? Something you could, I mean, Massachusetts, especially Boston, is big on education, big on intellect, big on schools. Some could argue, other than Jesus, the wisest man that ever lived was Solomon. Solomon wrote a book, Ecclesiastes, that said how miserable all of his life's achievements made him apart from God. Apart from God, they're nothing. And so in Ecclesiastes 1.18, it says, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. The more you know, the sadder you are apart from God. And then there's fame. People, they go after fame. They want to be famous. It's easier to become famous now, or perhaps infamous, than ever before. Now in the age of the internet and the smartphone, if I do something really foolish up here, it's going to go around the world. And if it's noteworthy enough, it'll go viral and I'll be famous if that's what I want. I, well, that would be more infamy, I think, at that point. 
But does it make anyone happy? I think about during the 1992 Barcelona Olympics when the original Dream Team was playing, remember? Michael Jordan, the best known, probably best known, most famous athlete in the world at that time. Maybe still, I don't know. Anyway, they're doing a documentary on him and he's walking down the street of Barcelona. And then they just stop, he just stops under a certain building and then the camera just pans back, keeps panning back, 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 back. And what you're seeing getting bigger and bigger is this huge seven-story high poster of himself dunking a basketball. And it's so huge you can't see the real guy. And he's looking up at it, etc. That's fame right there. But he confessed, you know, at the end of his career, he would have given it all up. He couldn't go out to eat. He couldn't do anything. Yet he was almost a prisoner in his home because everybody recognized him as soon as they saw him. What about pleasure? Think about people living for pleasure. I read a story about a venture capitalist named Tom Perkins. This is a guy who made money investing in Google when no one had heard of Google and other such uh, enterprises, made a lot of money. He invested $200 million of his dollars in the largest privately owned sailboat that had ever been designed and built, the Maltese Falcon. I watched it on 60 Minutes. I was interested um, about this guy. What interested me, though, is the continuing story. After the book was written, after this, you know, about four or five years later, he sold it at a loss. He was bored with it. Didn't bring him any happiness. Didn't bring him any satisfaction. It was expensive to run, and he sold it at a loss. And even Solomon tells us in, in uh, sorry, Ecclesiastes 2, 10 and 11, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. This was reward, the reward for all of my labor. And yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was vanity, meaningless. It was just a chasing after wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. What about beauty? Think about women movie stars like in Hollywood who you know, are known for their beauty, their attractiveness. And they, they win roles in movies because they're so spectacularly beautiful. They're the hot actress at the time. But you can't stop the ravages of time. It just the, the, the calendar keeps turning. Years keep passing. And after a while, they're not getting calls anymore. And I wonder what that's like. And I, I think about the plastic surgeries they undergo and they risk their health and they're willing to do all kinds of things to stop the aging process. And my mind quickly goes at that point to a Marilyn Monroe in some kind of a darkened room somewhere committing suicide at age 39. I don't know what was going through her mind, but it's easy to guess that she didn't want to face life as an old woman. None of these things is worthy of your full attention. None of these things is worthy of captivating your hearts for your entire life. All of them will fail you if they are your ultimate goal in life. Power and wealth and wisdom and fame and pleasure and beauty. They're all alluring idols in the world. That's what it means to gain the whole world. And Satan is always standing there ready to engineer a trade with you depending on how important you are, proportionally, right? So the more important you are, the more he's going to offer you. He's only offered to one individual the whole thing, though. Only one person ever got an offer of the entire world, and that was Jesus, the Son of God. He took Jesus up a high mountain and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and their, all their glory. And he said, all this I will give you if you'll just bow down to me and worship me. Apparently, the world doesn't even satisfy Satan because he has it to give and I'm not, not making him happy. 
They offered it to Jesus, and Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You've heard of the story, the famous story in German literature of Faust, Dr. Faustus, who sold his soul to the devil. And there's lots of stories in literature about that. Some people think Paganini, who was a famous violin player, was able, he would play so violently that he would accidentally break three strings on his violin and then prove that he could still play the concerto on one string. So people use this expression saying he had sold his soul to the devil for that skill. So we use that expression, selling your soul to the devil. Well, first of all, I want you to know that the devil only has power to tempt you and allure you. When judgment day comes, he's going to be busy. He's going to be in, in the lake of fire. He's going to be in torment. He doesn't live in hell like, like a lizard enjoys the heat of the desert. It was designed for the devil and his angels to punish them for their rebellion against God. And we humans who join Satan in his rebellion against God, we stand under the same judgment as Satan. So in the end, Satan won't have any authority to do anything with your soul eternally. But right now, he has the power to allure you and tempt you and entice you. And so he's trying to get you to sell your soul in some way for the world, some portion of the world. So that's what it means, the world, and what it means to gain it. What is the soul and what does it mean to lose it? Well, what is your soul? What are we talking about when we talk about the soul? I went to MIT. I was a mechanical engineer. I was trained in the scientific process of the five-sense world so that you study empirically the world around you. The soul cannot be discerned that way. The soul is the immaterial part of you. It's not made up of atoms. It's the immaterial or the spiritual part of you. It's part of being created in the image of God. God the Father has no body. There's no atoms to Him. He's not made up of material things. And so in the same way, we are created in His image. Some people say that the idea of a, an everlasting soul came from Greek philosophy and really is not part of the Hebrew mindset and worldview. That's completely false. But I can refute that even from the New Testament as uh, the Apostle Paul was talking about being absent from the body but present with the Lord. What could it be that would be absent from the body but present with the Lord other than what we call it, soul? And at the moment that that immaterial part of you, that soul, separates from the body, that's the moment of death. That's what death is. All of the body's physical stuff is still there, but the soul is gone. And so the body is like a tent or a tabernacle or a clay structure, clay pot, those kind of things. And it's falling apart because we're under Adam and we're sinners and we get diseases and we're going to die, all of that. But the soul is separated from the body and it goes to judgment. And that soul will spend eternity either with God in heaven or suffering with the devil and his angels in hell. So, what is the soul? It's that immaterial part of you. Now, it's more than merely your physical life. The ESV that many of you have has this translation. What, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? The problem with that translation, I think, in context here is, first of all, Jesus is about to talk about his second coming and judgment day. And that... And that that issue there is the soul. It's not just you're going to lose your life. And he's challenging his disciples to be willing to lay down their lives even to the point of death. So that doesn't fit. Another translation says uh, his very self. 
The soul is part of your, it's your very self, all right? So the implication there is if you pursue the world, you'll lose who you really are, that kind of thing. That's one of the translations, one of the misunderstandings. If you pursue wealth, you'll change, you'll become different, you'll become a different kind of person. Well, I think that will happen, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not the threat. The threat has to do with that eternal part of you, whether it lives or dies. So that soul is that part of you that can relate to God forever. Now, what does it mean to lose your soul? Well, all of us are in peril. We're in danger because of our sins. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Together, all of us have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So we start out lost, basically. Once we've sinned, we violate our conscience, we violate God's laws, we're lost. And Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. So through sin, through our rebellion, we are lost, but our lostness won't be confirmed until judgment day. So I really think ultimately the loss of the soul here is a judgment day picture of being eternally condemned by the righteous judge. So in effect, Jesus is saying, what would it profit you to gain all of the power and pleasures and possessions you could ever want in this life and be condemned to hell forever? I think that's what he's saying. For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory. And it says later in Matthew 25, He's going to gather all the nations before Him. All of them will be gathered before Jesus. And he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he's going to put the sheep on his right and he's going to put the goats on his left. And he's going to say to those on his right, to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. He's going to invite them in there. But then he's going to say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels then these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's the issue I think Jesus is getting to. And hell is a terrifying thing. It's not thought of properly in our culture. People don't understand it. I've heard it said, people will say this, I want to go to hell, all my friends are going to be there. Well, that may be, but you won't have any fellowship with them. You won't have any friendship with them. Friendship's a gift of God. All good gifts of God are pulled away after condemnation. All of those good things we've enjoyed are gone. It's a place of torment, a place of the act of wrath of God. It's a place of darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's true that that individual's friends may all be there, but they'll all be doing the same thing he is, wailing, screaming, gnashing teeth. And there is no escape. Revelation 14 says, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Jesus spoke more of hell than anyone else in the Bible. And thanks be to God. He came to deliver us from it. He came to rescue us so that we would not be lost. How then is a soul lost? It is lost because our sins have not been forgiven. Our sins have not been covered by the blood of Jesus. We've not been redeemed, and so we stand unforgiven on Judgment Day. That's how our soul is lost. And so then Jesus asks these two piercing questions. What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So there's, it's a gain and loss, like a, le, a, a ledger, balance sheet here. 
So the net gain, net loss on this investment, this trade, has to do with relative value and worth. And the clear implication of Jesus' question is, your soul and mine and the soul of every human being on the face of the earth, every individual soul is worth more than all of the material possessions, the things of this world. Isn't that the logic of Jesus' statement? It's worth more than all of it. Wow. Turn it around. That means there's not a single human being for which it would be a good trade to trade their soul for the world. No one's soul is so damaged. No, one's, no individual is so worthless. No one's so, so disreputable or any of those things that you could say. You say, well, at least for, for that individual, I think it would probably be a good trade. There's not a single individual you could ever say that about. Could be an orphan picking through a pile of garbage near Calcutta. You wouldn't say to that individual, it would be worth it to you to trade your soul to gain the world. Would not. All the way up to CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Would not be worth it to him or her. Trade your soul, that person's soul, for the world. So that should change the way you look at people, if you think about it. Every single individual you look at every single day will spend eternity somewhere. They are all eternal beings. As C.S. Lewis put it in his sermon, Weight of Glory, they're e eternal glories or eternal horrors, but they're eternal. There are no lightweight people. And then the second question, what about the issue of exchange? Picture ahead, and this is my job as a preacher. This is Tanner's job as a preacher. Everybody gets up in the pulpit. This is our job. Part of, our, part of my job is to make judgment day come alive to you before it happens by faith. As you hear God's preach word, make it come alive. I want you to picture sheep and the goats, right hand, left hand. On the left hand side comes this dreadful statement concerning an individual. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The scripture consistently reveals that no one goes, goes to hell volitionally. No one. Because no one wants to go there. It's terrifying. So there are angels dispatched to throw you there. It's always the verb of being cast into hell. Thrown out into outer darkness. That kind of thing. So an angel comes and grabs hold of that soul and brings them to the brink, right to the brink of the lake of fire. Just for the sake of argument to fit into Jesus' mentality, let's say that individual still retained control over their worldly possessions. What percentage of their estate would they give for their soul at that moment? I'll give you half of it, but I'm going to hold on to the other half. I don't know. Imagine dickering with the angel. All right, all right, all right, 75%. No, no good. 90%. How much, what are you going to hold on to? Jesus, is, the implication is you'd give it all at that moment, all of it, that you could somehow have your soul. But first of all, you'll have nothing with which to barter because it's all God's and he took it back. You have to give him an account now for what you did with it while, you, while it was yours, while you were steward of it. It wasn't yours anyway. Naked you enter the world, naked you leave. So you wouldn't have any of it anyway. But even if you could, you couldn't pay for your sins that way, it wouldn't work, no good. But Jesus is just showing you the value of your soul. And I think what it is, is he wants you to look and say, look how little you're trading your eternity for. It's nothing. What's holding you back from following Jesus? What is holding you back from believing in him? Oh, the esteem of my friends. They're not going to do you any good. Just like the devil, they're going to be busy on judgment day, giving an account for their own lives. What would hold you back? The Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory. 
And then he will give to each person according to what he has done. So what application can we take from all this? Well, I said at the very beginning, come to Christ, trust in him, believe in him, and you'll have eternal life. It's a free gift of sovereign grace. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He doesn't want you to do anything to pay for your sins. Justification is by faith alone. All you have to do is believe this simple gospel message. God sent his son into the world, incarnate of the Virgin Mary. He lived a normal human life. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. But he never sinned. He did, however, supernatural works to show he was also the son of God, unlike all of us. He lived a sinless life, but the most important thing he ever did was he died on the cross. The very thing he told his disciples he was about to go do. And he went and he died on the cross. Why? Was he trapped? Was he in over his head? Did the Romans get him? Did the Jewish enemies get him? No, none of that. He laid down his life freely of his own accord so that he could save us from our sins. And so there's an exchange here being offered. Our guilt, our sin, all of our wickedness given to him, our substitute, and he dies under the wrath of God. And his perfect righteousness given to us as a gift And in that, we stand radiant on judgment day, able to make it into heaven, not on our own merits. We're not going to spend eternity boasting in ourselves, friend, but we'll be boasting. Forever we'll be boasting just in Jesus. Say, Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my Savior. Has that double exchange happened for you? Has Christ taken your guilt on himself and died under the wrath of God and now God has no wrath to pour out on you because he poured it out on Jesus instead. Has Jesus become your lightning rod? Has he taken the lightning strike of God's wrath and now it's free? You're free. You will not die. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And have you received as a gift his perfect righteousness and does God see you that way? Perfectly righteous as he looks on you with his holy eyes and knows everything, no secrets. He sees you as righteous because of imputed, given a gift of righteousness. If not, come to Christ. You don't have to get up. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to turn around. You don't have to pray a prayer. You don't have to do any of that. You'll be living a lifetime of good works if you're genuinely justified. And then you will be praying prayers and you will be getting baptized and all kinds of things like that. But at that moment, the moment of justification, you don't have to move a muscle. You just have to hear and believe. But it's with the heart you believe and are justified. It's with the mouth that you confess and are saved. Trust in him. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Let him save you. And don't delay. You don't know how much longer you have. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I'm shocked at how bad the driving's gotten here in eastern Massachusetts. I'm stunned by it. I grew up here. I grew up here. We were on our way here. We were in a traffic circle, whatever you guys call it now, rotary, whatever, what do you call it, traffic circle. And I thought the rule is if you're already in there, it's yours to drive, right? This white car comes in, it isn't slowing at all. I was grateful for that because I knew it's his intentions. So I braked right on by. Amazing. Just like that. You don't know how long you have. Come to Christ. Now, if you are already Christian, examine yourself. Has the world infiltrated your heart? It's still a threat. Don't you know the world is still a threat? It's still alluring. The race you're running from from the moment of justification to glorification, it's called sanctification. It's a race of holiness. And every step of the way, you have to fight the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You have to turn 
your, your mind away from the alluring, drawing, siren call of the world and say, I'm following Jesus. That's what church is for. That's what discipleship's for. That's what your daily quiet time is for, to not love the world too much, to not get addicted to food or pleasure or hobbies or sports or anything and just live for Jesus. Examine yourself and be sure that you're born again. And meditate thirdly on the infinite worth and value of the human soul, yours and others. Treat people accordingly. Treat people well. All right? Understand they are eternities, these people you're dealing with, these people that you, that you talk to and that you maybe snub or held grudges against or do certain things with, etc. Remember, they will spend eternity in heaven or hell. Meditate not just on the infinite value of the human soul, but on the correspondingly small value of the world. Don't care that much what the world thinks about you. Don't care that much about the material possessions. You guys, if you're genuine Christians, you are heirs of the world. The meek will inherit the earth. You're going to get it all. Why would you want to carry it between now and then? Let it go. Be generous financially. Live for God's glory. And then finally, be evangelistic. Be evangelistic. Some of what happened here today as you listen to me, I hope you're just translating it into your own context at the workplace or in your neighborhood or with your family and just say this to your lost friends and relatives, family members, different things. Say these kinds of things. If you don't say it, who will? So be faithful to share the gospel while you have time. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to study your word today. Jesus' questions are probing. They're searching questions. What would it profit each one of us if we would gain the whole world and lose our souls? And what would we give in exchange for our souls? We thank you, O Lord, that you came to shed your blood so that you have bought us with a price. Help us to live for your glory. And I pray one more time for anybody that came in here unregenerate, that even now they would see Christ crucified and resurrected as their only hope and their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.